Well, good morning and welcome uh, to Faith Bible Church. It's, uh, it's good to see you all this morning. It's, uh, it's really, really good uh, to see you all here this morning. Uh, you have no idea how good it is uh, to see you all here with us this morning. Uh, you've never looked better. And uh, so we're so grateful that you're here with us. And I know many of you uh, aren't able to be here with us um, in person for various reasons. And uh, we're so glad that you've uh, joined us by live stream and been doing that over these last few weeks. And uh, we pray that you'll continue to do that in the weeks and months ahead. But this is uh, certainly a day for our church uh, uh, to express our thanks to God. And so let's bow before the Lord now with grateful hearts and give thanks to Him. Father, we come before you now and we remember the words of the Apostle Paul, those inerrant words, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light who rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Well, Father, we come above everything else today to thank You for that work of grace that You've done in our hearts uh, by Your Holy Spirit through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Father, thank You for saving us and transferring us into the kingdom of Your dear Son. Father, we thank You today that we're able to gather here together in person And I pray that you've used this time apart in our lives to deepen our love for one another, that we'll never take for granted again the opportunity to gather um, as the saints of God here in your presence. Father, I pray you continue to cause this virus uh, to lose steam. Uh, We pray for those working on vaccines or cures, that you give them great wisdom and you give them your help. We thank you for our leaders and our healthcare professionals, Lord, during these days, uh, for all the great work that they're doing and continue to do. Father, this Memorial Day, we give thanks for those who who gave that last full measure of devotion uh, for this country to keep us free. And I pray for families today that are remembering those that they've lost um, in wars, the various wars. And we pray that you bring great comfort and great hope to them today. Father, again, we're most thankful for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you that he's coming again. We pray that you'll use this service today to edify your church We pray that our worship today will be a fragrant aroma to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?
It is just so good to see so many of you here. So, so beautiful to be able to sing with you. Uh, we're going to continue to do that here in a few minutes. I want to echo Mark's welcome. I want to take a moment to let you know that there are a couple of things that we're not going to be doing this morning. So we will not first be doing a physical greeting time this morning. So go ahead and exhale uh, if you thought that was coming. Some of you introverts are hoping that's a permanent thing. But... Uh, <laughs> The, the passing of the peace that is so customary on a Sunday morning, we're going to forgo shaking hands, at least for the time being. Uh, we also, as you probably already noticed, we won't be doing any coffee or refreshments either today. Uh, we'll, we'll just be here an hour or so. We think you all can make it through that time, maybe catch a coffee at 7-Eleven on your way home or something like that. So those are the couple of things we're not going to be doing today. Uh, something we are doing, as you noticed when you came in, we are skipping every other row in the worship center. Uh, so just be mindful of that. Pay attention to the signs. If you're on the end of a row and there's a, a, a big space in that section where a, a, another family could possibly sit, uh, don't let that family climb over you. Go ahead and move in if you see somebody looking for uh, a seat here on the floor uh, today. The other thing that we're doing today uh, is we're providing these children's activity packs. Uh, so they're, they're uh, color-coded by age, and in them they have age-appropriate materials uh, we have a lot of kids in the service uh, that maybe aren't experienced in sitting through an entire worship service, so we're providing some activities uh, for them. If you didn't grab one of those on your way in, uh, they're available in the back as well as in the Welcome Center, uh, so avail yourself to this treat for your kids. Uh, and then the other thing that we're doing is we're meeting next week exactly like we're meeting today. So two services, worship services only, 9 and 11 family worship services, no uh, child care, student ministry, or ABFs will be meeting next week on May 31st. I want to bring somebody up uh, for a time of recognition, uh, Donovan Drake. Donovan, uh, many of you don't know who Donovan Drake is, uh, but he is the wizard. He is the man behind the curtain, so to speak. Uh, his title here at Faith Bible is our media director. Uh, and if you've been enjoying the ministry of Faith Bible Church these last 10 weeks, it is largely because of this man's efforts. So I want you to give him a hand. (laughs) 
we went from a very light online presence to a fully online presence, really um, just in a week's time. Um, and Donovan has been behind all of that. He's led his team very, very well. Donovan, you've served this church family so well these last uh, month, this two and a half months, I should say, uh, and we're very, very grateful for you, man. Thanks for all your work. I appreciate it very much. It is not surprising that Donovan would leave stage as, as quickly as possible. Um, Addie Zander, I also want to recognize Addie. Addie is our assistant director of student ministry, and in mid-March, when the world stopped uh, and we moved to live stream, rather than having different leaders come in each week uh, and lead our music, we asked her to lead our band and to be a consistent presence in our worship ministry. She has done an incredible job with that, so thank you very much, Addie. I've never led singing to an empty room, but I have to uh, imagine that that's difficult to do. Uh, but her passion, her sincere heart for Jesus are just obvious, and that has come through as she's led. Uh, we continue to search for a pastor of worship, but Addie will continue to help organize the team and, and lead our music in the meantime, and we're very, very grateful for her. And so with that, let's stand together. We're going to continue to worship, and we're going to sing Christ Our Hope in Life and Death. Thank you again for being here today.
about this hope we have in Christ.
That's all right. That's good. I like that. Amen. Well, you can be seated. Again, I want to welcome you all here this morning, and thank you for being here, and uh, thank you for that great singing this morning. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads again before the Lord in prayer as we open God's Word together. Father, we are here today to worship you, our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for this time of praise that we've had together to lift up your name. And Father, in these times in which we live, what a comfort it is to sing that your kingdom's unshakable, that you're our fortress, that you're our refuge. So Father, as we come now to open your inspired and errant word together, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher here this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you take your Bible with me and uh, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we are closing in on our study, at the end of our study here of, of the book of Second Peter. Uh, we've titled this series, Know and Grow. And again, we'll be finishing up this series, Lord willing, next week. And just to kind of let you know where we're headed, um, the week after that, June 7th, is the 40th anniversary of Faith Bible Church. And we'd wanted to kind of have a, a bit of a celebration, but in these times in which we live, we decided not to do that. But I do want to bring a special message that week as we celebrate the 40th anniversary of this church. And uh, then the week after that, Lord willing, June the 14th, I want to begin a, kind of a summer series on the 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. We could call this uh, the summer of love that we're going to have here together. But uh, it's an exciting study. I'm very, very fired up about that. So uh, that, that'll begin, Lord willing, June 14th. And uh, then the plan is uh, on August 16th to begin our study for the fall and into the next spring on the book of Daniel. So we're going to begin an exposition of Daniel at the, uh, near the end of the summer. So that kind of gives you an idea of where we're headed. But this morning, we're in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 13. And I've titled this message this morning, At the End of the Day. Let me read uh, these verses for us, beginning in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. May the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts this morning. It's an old story I like about two pastors that were standing by the side of the road and they're holding up a sign that said, the end is near, turn yourself around now before it's too late. And they held up the sign to each passing car, but the first driver that sped by yelled at them and said, uh, leave us alone, you religious nuts. But from around the curve, they heard screeching tires and a big crash. And one pastor turned to the other and he said, do you think we should have just held up a sign that said bridge out instead? Well, it's good to have people actually laugh a little bit. I mean, it's been kind of lonely here the last few weeks, but I have pictured you all laughing uproariously in your home. So that's done me uh, good to do that. But I like that story because uh, the sign those preachers held up is kind of an accurate statement of uh, where we are in our world today. 
And it's a mirror of what we see here in 2 Peter. Because the message of 2 Peter in many ways is that the end is near and we need to turn around now uh, before it's too late. Now, Peter, in these final words, in 2 Peter chapter 3, the final inspired words of the Apostle Peter, um, his life is nearing its end. And he's reminding us that Jesus is coming. And he's reminding us this world one day will pass away. And God is going to make a new world. And he's telling us that you and I need to live today in light of that day. Now, if you've been with us, you know that 2 Peter was written to combat false teaching that had infiltrated and infected these churches that Peter is writing to. And the core central error in these, with these false teachers was they were denying a literal second coming of Christ and the final judgment. In other words, they were denying final accountability. And, you know, people love to think that. They love to try to skirt the idea that someday they're going to be held accountable. It kind of gets them off the hook for how they live now. So they denied a second coming and a final judgment. And so beginning last time in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, we saw there that Peter hits this error head on. And he calls these false teachers mockers and scoffers. Because think about this, it's only been, when Peter's writing this, 30 years since Jesus ascended to heaven, and yet they're saying in verse 4, or verse 3, where is the promise of his coming? It's kind of a taunt or a mocking statement, and the idea is Jesus is not coming back. Now, we saw last time that these false teachers held to a form of, of a, a philosophy that's called uniformitarianism. That is, everything is uniform and stable and unchanging, and the world is a closed system with no room for God to intervene. In other words, there's no punctuated interruptions or cataclysms. And we saw last time that Peter defended this apparent delay in Christ's coming with, several, with, with three main points. Now, again, I want to always remind you, the Lord hasn't delayed His coming. He knows when He's coming. It's a delay to us. It's an apparent delay or a seeming delay. And Peter defends this with three points. He first points to God's power. And he said, look, God formed the world in the beginning, and he flooded the world, destroying all but eight people. He says, you want to talk about God intervening in history? Those are two pretty big interventions. God formed the world, and God flooded the world, and he's going to intervene again in the future when Christ comes. Then he reminded us in verse 8 about God's perspective. God doesn't mark time the way we do. With God, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. So it seems like a long time to us, but God doesn't count time the way we do. So we have to have God's perspective. And then we ended up in verse 9 last time with God's patience. The seeming delay in Christ's coming is a delay of mercy. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, the you there as believers, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I like what one person said that I read this week. He says, God's calendar is an evangelistic calendar. It's beautiful. God is waiting with patience and long-suffering for people to be saved. His delay is a delay of mercy. But God's patience and long-suffering with sinners doesn't mean that He's canceled or called off the second coming. That's still on God's calendar. Remember, I, I quoted last time near the end of the message the statement, God's patience is lasting, but it's not everlasting. 
God is patiently waiting, but he won't wait forever. God's delay is not God's denial. And so that brings us here to verse 10 when he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Christ is going to come back. Now to unpack these four verses here before us this morning, I've got three simple points you can see there in your outline. I want to look at the day, and then we'll look at the destruction, and then I want to look at the duty that is incumbent upon us uh, in light of what we read here in this passage. So I want to begin here with the day. At some point, the delay is going to be suddenly interrupted by the day, the day of the Lord. Notice he says in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's not been canceled. It's still on God's calendar. And it's certain and it's sure. And at some point in the future, God is going to begin to wrap things up. And, and, and this, this time when he does this is called the day of the Lord. Now that brings uh, up a very important biblical concept. Um, 19 times in the Old Testament, you'll find that phrase, the day of the Lord. But dozens of other times, maybe hundreds of other times, you'll see that phrase, in that day. In that day. It's a reference to the day of the Lord. And we, we have it four times in the New Testament, and of course, one of them um, is here. The day of the Lord. Now, I've got a couple of slides. Hopefully, these slides will help uh, me not to have to describe this as much. But here's my definition of the day of the Lord there at the bottom. The day of the Lord is any time when God directly, dramatically intervenes in history, either to judge or to bless So it's when God comes and and intervenes dramatically and directly, either to judge or to bless. Now, most of the time, the day of the Lord refers to judgment, but it also refers to blessing as well. And in the Old Testament, the prophets talk a lot about the day of the Lord. And so they're what we might call historical days of the Lord. In other words, past days of the Lord. For instance, in Ezekiel 30, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered the, the Egyptians, it was called the day of the Lord. When uh, Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Judah, that was called the day of the Lord. In the book of Joel, when God sent a locust plague upon the people, that was called the day of the Lord. It was God intervening dramatically to judge. But those past historical days of the Lord all looked forward to or prefigured the ultimate day of the Lord, the eschatological or the, the final day of the Lord. They all foreshadow that. Now, the next, uh, the next picture here is kind of a, a chart, and let me just explain this real quickly. We're on the left side of that chart now. We're in the church age. We're living in this time of the church age, and my view of prophecy is that the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. The Lord's going to descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first, we who are alive and remain, caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's the next event, I believe, on God's prophetic calendar. And after that, there'll be a time of tribulation that will come, a seven-year tribulation, a time of judgment. And then that will end with the second coming of Jesus back to earth. And then there'll be a time of the millennium or the thousand-year reign of Jesus. And at the end of that time, as we've read in our passage, there's going to be a destruction of the present heavens and earth, and it's going to be a recreation or a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the term the day of the Lord comes from an ancient Near Eastern, the ancient Near Eastern culture, where a mighty warrior king would go out and if he could consummate an entire military campaign in a single day, 
That would be the day of that great ruler or that king. And so the day of the Lord speaks of that time when the Lord will come and he will bring about victory and triumph. And a Hebrew day, a day on the Hebrew calendar starts at sunset and ends the next sunset. So when you think about a day, it started in darkness and then it went to light. And it's the same thing with the day of the Lord. God's day, the day of the Lord will begin with darkness or judgment in the tribulation period and then will give way to blessing or light in the millennium. So the day of the Lord, the future or final day of the Lord goes from the rapture to the recreation. That whole long span of time stretching from the rapture all the way to the recreation of a new heaven and a new earth, that entire time is the day of the Lord. There's a judgment phase, a darkness phase, and then there's a blessing phase or a light phase. So that's this time that we know as of the day of the Lord that's spoken of here. But the day of the Lord will begin after the rapture takes place. The tribulation will start at some point after that. That's the beginning of the day of the Lord. So the rapture is kind of the trigger for that, if you will. Now we live today in what I would call the day of grace. Now it's not that there wasn't grace before the church age or that there won't be grace after it. But the unique, distinct feature of this age is God working and moving by His grace. But one of these days, the day of grace will end and the day of the Lord is going to begin. And Peter says here, it's going to come like a thief. It's going to come unexpected and unannounced. Back in 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul talks about of the day of the Lord. And he uses some very graphic language there when he mentions it. He says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, or I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2, for you yourselves know full well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now notice the, the, the uh, pronouns here, while they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman, and they, and in the Greek here, it's a double negative, and they will by no means escape. That's a graphic picture here. But then verse 4, notice the contrast, but you, brethren, talking to believers, are not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. I think that's a picture there of God coming to catch away his church, to take away believers to heaven before this time of the day of the Lord comes. But it's coming unexpected and unannounced. Back in Matthew 24, Jesus used that same picture of a thief coming. And he says, the the son of man is coming at a time when you think not. There's a, a great story from years ago of the great Scottish Presbyterian preacher, Robert Murray McShane. I mean, he was with a bunch of pastors one night late into the evening. They were praying and discussing the Bible together. And during that time, one of them had brought up the topic of the coming of Jesus Christ. And as they were closing the meeting, McShane went around and asked each one of these pastors one at a time, do you think Christ will come tonight? And one by one, they said, I think not. And when, he, when they'd all given their answers, McShane solemnly closed his Bible and said, the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you think not. And then he closed in prayer. Jesus can come at any moment. The trumpet can sound. And believers are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air in the twinkling of an eye. And the day of grace is going to be over, and this world is going to be plunged into the day of the Lord. 
And the more people today that think not, the more likely it is Christ is going to come back. The Son of Man is coming at a time when you think not. Well, that's the day. That's the day of the Lord. This long stretch of time after the rapture all the way till the recreation. Now, that brings us to this second point I want to focus on, the destruction. There's one, one part of the day of the Lord that Peter focuses in on, and that's the very end of it when this world's going to be destroyed and a new world's going to be created. Now, something very important to see here is it's important to understand that Peter here is not intending to give a detailed chronology or sequence of end-time events. He's not laying out a detailed chronological outline here in this passage. As in many biblical passages, especially in prophecy, the authors will kind of telescope the events and leave out large gaps of time. So Peter here, in talking about the day of the Lord, really passes over the tribulation and the millennium and just goes all the way to the very end of it. That's why I've called this message today at the end of the day. Because we're going to go all the way to the end of this time, the day of the Lord, when God's going to make all things new. So he's trying to impress upon us the need to be right with God before this inescapable day dawns on the world. Now, one of the big questions that's always raised here, and I'll address this as we go along, is at the end of the day of the Lord, is God going to simply come and make this world new, kind of remake it, or is he going to destroy it and make it brand new? In other words, is this universe going to be kind of like fixer-upper where God's going to come in and kind of, you know, fix it up a little bit and make it better? Or is he going to destroy it and make a new one? My view is he's going to destroy it and make it new. Now, again, it's not a, it's not a huge issue one way or the other, but I take it God is going to destroy this present world. And one of the reasons he's going to do that, I think, to remove all the, 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 the remnants and the, the vestiges of sin. He's going to destroy it and he's going to make it new. And you read this passage here, this is the only description of the end of the world in the Bible. This is it, the only one. Other places will mention what's going to happen, but this is the only place it's described. He says, the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavens means the universe. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The word elements there in Greek means the basic building blocks of something, like the ABCs or, or, or something that's the, the basic uh, 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 matter that something's made from. And I think here the elements really refers to the atom, because obviously the atom is the building block of matter. And he says that, that the elements, you could say here the atoms will be destroyed, and the word there literally means to be untied or to be loosed. When you untie an atom, what happens? you get a big explosion. It's picturing here this world, this universe, being destroyed in a universal meltdown, a global nuclear holocaust. It's going to be a, a cosmic conflagration as this universe as we know it is destroyed. And he says down at the end of verse 12, in which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements with intense heat. The end of verse 10, he says, the earth and its works will be burned up. Remember, God destroyed the world first time by water, by, by, by flood. The second time, he's going to do it uh, by fire. There's going to be a cosmic collapse, if you will. You know, the Bible starts with the words, in the beginning, God. And you could really write over this passage, in the end, God. 
Uh, this world's not going to be destroyed by global warming or by some madman who pushes a, the nuclear button. God himself is going to be the one who destroys it. And how's he going to do it? He's going to do it by his word. Look at verse 7. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God's the one who's going to do it. I read a, I, there's one word that I read years ago that someone used to describe this. And I've never been able to forget it. This man called it uncreation. Think about that. We have creation, and then we're going to have uncreation. And then, of course, then we'll have a new creation as God makes a new heaven and makes a new earth. But it's a, it's a sobering scene. Turn over to Revelation 20. This is, uh, this is one of the most sobering scenes in the Bible. I mean, to me, if this wouldn't grab somebody's attention here this morning, I don't know what on earth would. Revelation chapter 20. This is the end here of the day of the Lord. At the very end of the day of the Lord, the, the, the tribulation's going to have run its course, the judgment phase. The millennium's going to have run its course, the blessing phase. And at the very end, there's going to be a judgment, the great white throne judgment, where all the lost are going to be gathered from all the ages to be judged by God. And then God's going to destroy the present heaven and earth and make a new one. But look in chapter uh, 20 and verse 11 in the book of Revelation. This is John the Apostle says, Then I saw a great white throne. Literally, it's a mega white throne. And him who sat upon it. And we know the one sitting upon this throne is the Lord Jesus himself because God has committed all judgment to the Son. So Jesus is sitting there on a great white throne. And look at those words, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And there was no place found for them. As Jesus appears at this great white throne at the end of his millennial reign, the universe and the earth are going to disappear. Heaven and earth are going to flee away from him. He's going to speak the word and there's going to be uncreation. Now think about this. This is right before the great white throne judgment. All the lost of all the ages are gathered there. People who deny God and blaspheme his name and don't even believe that he exists. And I'll often hear people sometimes, especially atheists, will say, well, you know, if there is a God, someday when I appear before him, I'm going to tell him this or that or whatever. And I, want to, I say to him, you're not going to tell him anything. Romans 3, it says every mouth will be stopped. Think about this. The last thing they will see before they're judged is God's going to speak the word and the universe is going to disappear. It's going to flee away in a, in a cosmic conflagration. And then they're going to have to appear before him uh, to be judged. To me, this is the most sobering scene in the Bible. And if there's nothing else in the Bible that will drive you to your knees, this should. When we think about the greatness and the power and the majesty and the might of the God uh, that we serve. And then he goes on in chapter 21, verse 1, and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. The word passed away doesn't necessarily mean to go out of existence, but I think that's what it means here, because if you go down in verse 4, he uses the same word, where he says, there's no longer any crying or death or mourning or pain. The first things have passed away. Those things aren't just going to be renovated. They're going to be gone. Tears and crying are going to be gone. 
So the word passed away there means to be gone. So I take that what it also means in verse 1 when he says the first heaven and the first earth passed away. They've been destroyed. And he's going to make a new heaven and he's going to make a new earth. And if you read through these chapters, and we won't have time to do it this morning, but you'll see that the, the new heaven and new earth is going to be a place of no more. No more sea, no more curse, no more crying, no more tears. It's known as the place of the no mores. And to me, the most natural interpretation of these verses is that the present heaven and earth are going to be destroyed and replaced by a new one. Uh, Chuck Swindoll puts it like this. He says, this isn't a sequel. It isn't simply a re-edited version enhanced with clear sound, brighter colors, and a smattering of digitally enhanced special effects. This is no re-edit. It's a remake. The new creation, uh, he says, this is no re-edit. It is a remake. So this is going to be a a new heaven and a new earth that God is going to make. And this new creation will be blessing minus cursing multiplied by infinity. That's what's going to be there. Here's a a quote just to kind of summarize the new heaven and new earth. It says, all that's bad will be absent and all that's good will be present. The curse will be removed. The blessing of God will be known in a manifest and multiplied way. Night will not cloud its day. Death will not walk its streets. Tears will not seep through its walls. Sickness will not enter its gates. Sin will not curse its history. The devil will not bother its citizens. On and on and on we could go. It's going to be paradise regained. We're going to be returning. It's going to be back to Eden. When you think about this, this is going to be a real, tangible, physical world. It's, it's, it's not some ethereal, spiritual world. It's a, it's a real new universe and a new earth. If you go on and read in Revelation 21 and 22, the, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, it's a 1,500-mile cube. It's like a floating continent. It's going to come down and sit on the new earth and serve as like the capital city of this metropolis that God will create. But it's going to be a real place, a real earth, a real heavens. We're going to be living there in real glorified bodies. We'll live in this new universe on a new earth with the new Jerusalem. So that's where this world is headed. And that's what Peter wants us to know. He takes us all the way to the end of the day of the Lord, to the recreation. Now, when you read something like this, certainly this has to have implications for our lives. It has to have ramifications. I mean, like like Peter says here in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should you be in holy conduct and godliness? I mean, you should put an exclamation point there. What kind of people should we be in light of what's coming? Now, I call this here in our outline our duty, the duty that we have, but I would also like to call it our delight because it ought to be our delight to do these things shouldn't be some drudgery that we do. You know, we have an ethical eschatology. Our eschatology or view of the end times is ethical. It has implications for how we live. And there are many of those implications, but I see three main ones in these verses. Uh, The first one is to clean up. We need to clean up our lives. Knowing all of this should have a cleansing, purifying influence on how we live. Over in 1 John 3.3, the Apostle John says, if we fix our, fixing our hope on him, we purify ourselves even as he himself is pure. In other words, if you fix your hope on the coming of Christ and you believe he could come at any moment, it's to have a purifying, cleansing influence on your life. 
And he says here in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Holy conduct means conduct that's distinct from this world. And godliness means the idea of reverence or awe towards God. And actually in the Greek, both of these words are plurals. So you could translate this, holinesses and godlinesses. You and I should be living lives that are filled with an attitude and actions of holinesses and godlinesses. In other words, seeing where everything is headed, you and I should sin less. We gotta submit to God more. Knowing that Jesus is coming should have a cleansing influence on our lives. There's a story I read about after church one Sunday, a, a little girl had been taught in her Sunday school class about the rapture. She was quizzing her mother, and she said, "Uh, Mommy, do you believe Jesus is coming back? And her mom said, well, yes, I do. She said, well, do you believe that uh, Jesus could come back today? And she said, yeah, I believe that. She said, well, do you believe he could come back in a few minutes? And my mom said, yes, I do. And the little girl looked at her mother and said, Mommy, would you comb my hair? I like that. I want to be ready when Jesus comes. We want to be ready when the trumpet sounds. 1 John 2.28, the Apostle John says, we don't want to shrink back in shame at His coming. That's written to Christians, to shrink back in shame at His coming. The Bible tells us here at the end of verse 13 that in this new heaven and new earth, righteousness will dwell. It'll be at home there. And since perfect righteousness is coming to this world in the future, we should want to live lives of personal, practical righteousness now. You and I need to live righteously while we wait. Now, let me say this, because I know when we talk about this, there's many of us here maybe listening that maybe you failed the Lord miserably this week. You know, we're talking about holinesses and godlinesses, and you're thinking, man, I, you know, I failed the Lord, and and maybe you're discouraged today because of the state of your spiritual life. And I want to just give a word to, to those of us here today who may be discouraged and need some hope. Uh, There's a story I read in a book by Anne Graham Lotz some time back. It's her book on heaven. It's a story about a group of fishermen that are sitting around a table in a a local pub, and they're telling their fish stories. And uh, uh, the the, uh, barmaid is bringing, uh, uh, carrying beer around in these big platters, and one of the men's telling the fish story, and he waves his arms how big the fish was. He hits into this tray and knocks these these, these uh, uh, pints of beer all over the place, and they smash and all over the, the wall of the pub. And they all turn silent as they begin to see this big, brown, ugly stain forming there on the wall. And before anybody, though, could uh, recover from the startling interruption of all this, a man who'd been sitting in the corner by himself takes a piece of charcoal out of his pocket and begins to sketch on this stain. And to the amazement of everybody present, right before their eyes, this stain was transformed into a majestic stag with incredible uh, massive antlers. And he was racing across a beautiful highland meadow. And the guest then, this man who drew this picture, signed his work of art. His name was Sir Edwin Landseer. He was Britain's foremost wildlife artist. And uh, Anne Graham Lotz, in concluding this story, says this, God transforms lives as Sir Landseer transformed the ugly mess on that pub wall. What ugly brown stain does your life bear? 
regardless of what the stain is, submit it to God. You must be willing to turn away from any and all sin, period. Then God excels in transforming ugly brown stains into beauty marks when we surrender them to Him. He'll bring peace and freedom to you and glory to Himself. I just thought that might be a word that someone here needs to hear this morning. You know, talking about godlinesses and holinesses, and certainly that's what God desires from us. But we fail Him often, and God can even take our stains and our sins and use them to transform us. Look, I'm not saying this this morning to make an excuse for our sin, but I'm saying it as an encouragement to all of us here. And look, when we turn to the Lord, that doesn't remove the cost and the consequence of what we've done. But God can take even the dark stains of our life and transform them into something beautiful if we'll confess it to Him and we'll submit our lives to Him. But God's calling us to do that, to submit to Him, to, to, to clean up and to be ready. And God loves you and He wants to strengthen you and He wants to use you as we await His coming. Well, the second duty in light of the end is to look up to look up. Three times in these verses, you'll find that word looking for. We're to be looking for this. And that Greek word would be better translated waiting or literally looking forward to. That's really what the word means, to be looking forward to it. And when you read the entire New Testament, the New Testament has an air of expectancy about it. In fact, one of every 25 verses in the New Testament are about the coming of Christ. Um, One great verse, Titus 2.13, looking forward to that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Um, One time in the New Testament, we find that word Maranatha, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. means our Lord come. And it's an Aramaic word, not a Greek word. And the early church used this word as kind of a code word when the believers would see one another out in the marketplace during the day. A believer would say to another believer, Maranatha, which means our Lord come. Of course, the Greek speakers around them had no idea what it meant. And that's a word that's kind of fallen out of uh, popularity among believers, but it's a beautiful word, Maranatha, our Lord come. Peter Davids says this, that the problem contemporary followers of Jesus has is not that they're looking forward too much to the future world, but they're not looking forward to it enough. And I think that's true. And if a lot of us are honest, that's probably true in our lives. But Jesus is coming and a new world is coming. And the Bible says we're to look forward to that day and we're to long for that day and we're to live in light of that day, to be looking forward to it. I've been reading a book um, by Robert J. Morgan. It's a really good book. I'd recommend it. It's 100 Bible Verses That Changed America. It's great stories about our history and the Bible. But I was struck by one that he, a story he tells about George H.W. Bush. And when he was sworn in on January 20th, 1989, he had his hand on George Washington's Bible open to the Beatitudes. And the first thing he did after he was sworn in was to pray. And he declared 1990 the International Year of the Bible. And according to Robert J. Morgan in his book, President Bush referred to prayer in 220 different speeches, proclamations, and remarks. And no other president used the term one nation under God more than he did during his four-year term. But he tells the story about George H.W. Bush's close friend, James Baker, who helped serve on his staff when he was president. And... um, He felt like he uh, owed so much to President Bush because 
he kind of uh, lapsed into alcoholism after the death of his wife from cancer. Uh, James Baker did. And George H.W. Bush helped him greatly. So near the end of President Bush's life, um, he was there with him constantly as his companion. He'd rub his feet, provide him comfort. And he always called him Hefa, which is the Spanish word for chief. And I like this story. It says, on November 30th, 2018, Baker entered the bedroom and Bush opened his eyes and looked at him and said, Bake, where are we going today? And he said, well, Hefa, we're going to heaven. And George H.W. Bush says, good, that's where I've always wanted to go. And then he says, George H.W. Bush made the journey safely about 10 o'clock that night. That's a great statement, isn't it? That's where I've always wanted to go. Look, for you and for me, we we have things on this earth that we love and that we need to take care of and our families, but I pray that all of us can honestly say in our heart and life, I'm looking forward to uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to uh, that heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. Well, the final thing here that we're to do in light of what's coming is to speak up. We're to speak up. Verse 12 has a fascinating statement here. It says, we're to be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, I take it the day of God here is just a synonym for the day of the Lord. But notice he says, we're not just looking forward to it, but we're to hasten it or speed it up. You say, well, now, wait a minute. How can we speed up the Lord's coming? Isn't God sovereign? And doesn't he know when Jesus is coming back? The answer is yes, but... God not only appoints the end, God appoints the means to that end. And what we do is part of the means to the end that God has has set on his calendar for the second coming of Jesus. So again, it's like a lot of other things. There's divine sovereignty and human responsibility working together. You say, well, then what are the things that we could possibly do to hasten or speed up the coming of the day of the Lord. Well, in the context here, one of them would be preaching the gospel and evangelism and missions. Because remember in verse 9, he says, the Lord is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. At some point in time, the last person in this church age will be saved and the rapture will take place. So through evangelism and missions and the preaching of the gospel, we actually, by doing that, hasten and speed up the coming of Jesus Christ within God's sovereign plan. Another way I think we speed up the coming is by prayer. What did Jesus say we're to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. I mean, the Bible ends with a prayer. Even so come, Lord Jesus. God factors in our prayers and our desire for for the coming of the day of the Lord in his sovereign plan. And then the final thing I think is just to practice godly living. I mean, this passage here is just saturated with the idea of living a godly life in view of what's coming. So you and I are instruments in furthering God's purposes. We're part of the means to God's end that he's decreed in the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I titled this message today, At the End of the Day, and we often use that phrase, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're kind of a conclusion. But at the end of the day, you and I need to be living for what matters most. You and I need to be living in light of eternity. You and I need to be investing our time and our resources in what's going to last and not allow ourselves uh, to be short-sighted. 
We need to, to clean up and we need to, to look up and we need to, to speak up and be a witness for Christ in these days in which we live. We need to keep working while we're waiting. Back in uh, 1789, the, the skies of New England darkened ominously. So it's an interesting event to read about in history. We st- I still don't know if they know why it happened. But birds fell silent and it was a, an eerie sensation. And the, the Connecticut House of Representatives was meeting in Hartford, Connecticut. And the Colonel Abraham Davenport was the speaker of, of the house, a, a godly believer. And as all this began happening, the, the representatives began to clamor for an immediate adjournment so they could go home. And Davenport rose and said this. These are great words. He said, the day of judgment is either approaching or it's not. If it's not, there's no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I request that candles be brought in. I love that. Look, the signs around us point to the coming of Christ. The sky is getting darker all the time. And if any generation of people should be living on the tiptoe of expectancy, it's our generation. We're to be looking forward to seeing Jesus when he comes. But we don't know when he's coming back. So as we wait, you and I want to be found doing our duty. And we want to be found delighting in it. When he comes, we want to be cleaned up. We want to be looking up. We want to be speaking up. Witnessing while there's still time. So let's bring in the candles and let's keep working while we're waiting. Because the day of the Lord's coming. The day of the Lord's going to come like a thief. And make sure, make sure, whatever, that you're ready. Well, let's pray. If there's anyone here this morning or maybe watching via live stream or watching this archived, if what we've said here this morning won't shake you and cause you to flee to Jesus Christ, I don't know what will. What's waiting for this world and those who do not know the Lord is unspeakable. But God has provided a way of escape. He's provided a refuge in Jesus Christ. But Jesus is coming for those who've come to Him. If you've never come to Him, why not do it right now? Wherever you are, you can come to Him. The Bible says whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus will give you eternal life. He'll wash away your sins. He'll save you through his death and through his resurrection on your behalf. Come to him if you never have before and take him to be your savior from sin. And Lord, for those of us who know you, we thank you that Jesus can come at any moment. We thank you that the trumpet can sound and we'll be caught up to be with you. But Father, help us to live in light of what's coming. Help us to invest our lives and our time and our money and all that we have wisely, being good stewards for you. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to speed up and hasten your coming through what we do. Lord, help us to be found faithful when you come. Lord, help us to take every advantage we have of this day of grace in which we live as we await the coming of the day of the Lord. Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus. We ask these things in his dear name. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing of the Lord's faithfulness as we leave from here?
Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen said uh, that the great reformer Martin Luther had two days on his calendar, today and that day. And I like that. Let's live today in light of that day. A Maranatha, Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.